0: Our scripture reading today comes from Revelations 3, 14 through 22 and can be found on page 1030 in your pew Bible. If you do not have a Bible, we hope that you will take this one home with you today as a gift from us. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Alan. Well, it's good to see you again. Um, and uh, glad that you're here with us this morning. If you are going to come to the jazz concert, which I would highly encourage you, it's a wonderful event. But that is, uh, we have a lot of folks who come out, usually about 500 people, um, packs in this room. And so if this is your church home especially, encourage you to come a little bit early just to uh, get, um, yeah, just to be able to easily make room and all that kind of thing and get here and settled early. Uh, it's been a great event the last, uh, this will be the third year we've done it now, but it's always been a, a great turnout uh, from across our campuses and uh, across the neighborhood. So, I encourage you to come early uh, on the 14th if you come. Uh, well, let's pray now as we turn to uh, look at this uh, final letter that Jesus uh, wrote here in Revelation chapter 3. So, Father in heaven, I pray uh, that you would help us to see Jesus, Lord, that you would help our eyes to be opened. Uh, to see who you truly are, who we truly are, and the grace that reconciles those realities. And we pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, no matter your church background or uh, where you're at, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or you maybe you're here and you wouldn't even consider yourself a Christian, I don't know exactly where you're at in your faith journey this morning. And so I'm not sure exactly how each of you might imagine or picture the risen Jesus reigning in heaven. What image might come to your mind when you think about the risen and reigning Jesus, but I would, I would take the bet that you hadn't pictured Jesus vomiting. Just, just guessing. Like one of our, our cats with a hairball, you can kind of hear the sound of it coming up all through the house, right? So you're like, gross, Bill, you, i you're putting your donut hole back down? I guess I'm done with that for now. Um, and, and, and I'm sorry about that, but that is the image that Jesus uses to describe himself in this letter to the Laodicean church. He says, "Because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth." And, and that word "spit" isn't like the, like you have a spit take. Like you took a big glass of drink of water, and someone says something really funny, and you you know, spit it out of your mouth. No, I mean this is vomit, like food poisoning vomit. That is the that's the word. But most translations don't go there because well, it's I mean it's gross. Um, but that's what the word means. In fact, one Bible translation team, you know, in their notes put it this way. It Says vomit is the, the literal meaning of the Greek verb. It usually is translated with a much weaker term like sped out due to the unpleasant connotations of the English verb vomit. So what is happening in this church that should cause us to imagine Jesus throwing up. And that's what we want to look at here together this morning. Uh, Because again, if you're just going to join us for the last seven weeks, we've been looking at the letters that Jesus has written to seven real churches that existed in the first century. And we're looking at the final letter today. Uh, And next Sunday, before we enter into the Advent season and the Gospel of Luke, we're going to take one more Sunday and really kind of look at what what do we as a local church need to hear from the Scriptures, and we're going to do that from Romans chapter 12. But this morning, we've got to figure out what could be possibly happening in this church that would make Jesus want to throw up. And together, we're going to look at this passage together, and we're going to see the problem Um, The diagnosis, like the the cause, like what's happening, and then finally the solution or the the cure. How do we address this? So the problem and the diagnosis and then the solution. And, And Jesus is pretty clear about the problem. They are living a lukewarm life. He says you're living a lukewarm life and Jesus says he wishes they were either hot or cold but but they're neither they're they are tepid now if you've been around the church you've grown up in church you, you may have heard this passage taught and there's a lot of debate and discussion about how do we understand what Jesus means by hot and cold and and lukewarm and, and what is what are, yeah what do each of those terms mean and, and sometimes people have talked about well Jesus would rather you be either on fire for him or just reject him completely but not be somewhere in the middle and then that, that that could be right, but I actually think a better reading, a better understanding of the text is this, because I don't think Jesus would rather have anyone completely reject him. I don't think that fits with the rest of what we see in the New Testament. I think a better understanding is this, is that when you look at the the cultural and historical background, Laodicea, the city, it lacked its own fresh water supply. It was actually right on the banks of the Lycos River, but that river was really muddy. You couldn't drink the water. It wasn't good water to drink. And so they had to bring in the water from a hot spring that was about five miles away through an aqueduct. And so by the time the water was carried along the aqueduct, it was no longer hot from the hot springs, But it hadn't cooled, you know, it wasn't like a cool, refreshing stream. It was just lukewarm. It was tepid. And it wasn't very pleasant to drink. But, Two nearby cities had just the opposite. So Hierapolis was a a nearby city. It was where hot springs were located. It was known for these hot springs that were medicinal. People went there to to soak in those springs. So you can read this in kind of ancient historians. And then also the city of Colossae, which we actually know, uh, that's the letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Colossians that was written to the city of Colossae, is also nearby. And they were known for their cold, refreshing water. And so Jesus is saying to them, you know, I I wish that you were either hot water like Hierapolis, that was healing and refreshing to people, or that you were cold water that was just life-giving and refreshing. But you're you're neither. You're just like the water in your city. You are tepid. You are lukewarm. And so Jesus says in verse 15, I know your works, Laodicea. You are neither cold nor hot. You're neither Colossae or Laodicea. You are lukewarm. Would that you are either cold or hot. Because again, hot water is great. Cold water is great. But tepid, lukewarm water, it's it's just, it's gross to drink even. And, And we know this, right? We know this. Great, hot cup of coffee, Nothing like it. So good, right? On a hot day, go into your favorite coffee shop, get an iced coffee. Really good. That cup of coffee that's been on your desk since 9 a.m. that morning, and it's now at 3 in the afternoon and it's just old and room temperature. It's gross, right? Hot coffee is great. Iced coffee is great. Same with tea, right? It's a cold winter day. Nothing better than a blanket, big cup of hot tea, so cozy. Or you've been working in the yard on a July afternoon, you go in and pour that cold glass of iced tea. But that, that cup of tea that you just left out on the counter, it's three hours later and it's just kind of cool and lukewarm. It's gross, right? And you don't have to be a beverage connoisseur to know this either. The other day, uh, our, our daughter uh, Lucy um, had called me back. We'd put her to bed a while ago. It was probably the third or fourth time she called me back. And she said, Dad, I want a glass of water. So I am like, okay. Again, this is the third or fourth time she'd call back. I wasn't highly motivated to meet this request, but I, I said, okay, I'll get you a glass of water. I went into the kitchen, I turned on the water, and we'd just been doing dishes, so the water was coming out of the faucet was hot. But again, because I was kind of annoyed, I didn't want to stand there and wait for the water to cool down fully. I was like, I'm just going to get her a glass of water so she can go away to sleep. So I fill up this water, I bring it to her, and she takes one drink of it. She says, Dad, this water is warm. I don't want it. <laughs> it's like you and Jesus both, Lucy. You and Jesus both. <laughs> Because uh, look, I know Jesus is saying, look, I know your works, this, the way that you're living. And it, your living doesn't reflect the life that I've called you to. You you aren't living a life of healing. You aren't living a life of refreshment. Those are those pictures of hot and cold, It's healing that's refreshing. You aren't doing either one of those. You're just living a sort of lukewarm life, a different kind of life altogether. So that's the problem that Jesus identifies. But what is, what's the cause? What's the diagnosis? What's going on here? And the diagnosis, it isn't that they're facing persecution from the outside. If you've been with us in this, this series and walked through this, we've seen a number of churches that were facing extreme, uh, difficult persecution from other people in their city. That's not the case in Laodicea, at least not what Jesus mentions. Uh, Other letters that we've looked at, uh, Jesus mentioned sort of false teaching, false beliefs that had begun to creep into the church. But that's, he doesn't say anything about, you know, look out for the false teaching. Now, the diagnosis that Jesus gives here is, I think, much more sobering and much more relatable, actually, to our situation at Christ's community than either of those, the diagnosis that he gives is it's an I need nothing sort of attitude. They have an I don't need anything from you, Jesus, kind of attitude. Look look at verse 17 again. This is Jesus speaking to them. He says, for you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. I need nothing. I'm good. But he says, but you not realizing that you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Right? And this, again, they are reflecting more of the the culture and the moment of their city than they are of their faith in Jesus. Because the city of Laodicea, it was the epitome of sort of self-sufficiency, self-sustaining pride. It had had a thriving banking industry. It was known for its banking. It was the site of an ancient medical school, so it had a great sort of medical treatment. There was even, you know, they manufactured like an eye salve there that would help with healing of of blindness. we're going to get to that minute. Jesus picks up and uses that that language. That They had financing, they had money, they had uh, medicine, they had this this, uh, medical school there. And also it was known for its textile industry. They made lots of material goods um, and they were a great commercial center. They were right at the intersection of several major trade routes, so a lot of trade happening. This was a powerful, wealthy, self-sufficient city. In fact, in AD 60, which is about the time that Paul is doing his missionary journey, sending letters, he's in prison, just kind of give you a time frame on that if you're familiar with some of the other New Testament, about that time there was an earthquake in Laodicea that destroyed a lot of the city. And rather than seek help from the Roman imperial government, They actually refused that help because we are just going to to rebuild on our own with our own money. Now there's some question as you look at the historians whether that was because they were mad at Rome and they actually couldn't get the funds that they would have needed or whether they were just self-sufficient in their pridefulness of that. But the point stands is that they had the financial resources to rebuild the city on their own without the outside help. And the church had adopted that same self-sufficient identity of their city rather than being a witness to their city of a posture of utter and complete dependence on Jesus. And it makes Jesus sick. And this is, this is the big takeaway from this morning's passage, that a self-sufficiency like that makes Jesus sick. It's incompatible with a real relationship with him. It cuts off any possibility of really knowing him, of really having a relationship with him. They were okay living like it was fine if Jesus never showed up, we've got this. Cuz they had the three they had the 3 M's. They had money. They had medical care. And they had a, an abundance of material goods. And those are all things that in our cultural context for most of us in this room that we also have in abundance. Access to financial resources, great medical care, material goods in abundance. And all of those things can begin to give us, begin to give me the the illusion that I don't actually really need anything from Jesus that I'm actually pretty much okay on my own, that I can actually pretty much meet my needs on my own. In fact, I was realizing this week, I actually sort of carry tokens or, or icons of those three things around with me uh, in my wallet all the time. I have my, my credit card or my debit card, right? I have my, my insurance card. And in the other pocket, I have my phone, right? And those three things together can They go a long way to making you feel like, I don't really need anything from anyone else, right? The car breaks down if I need to go buy some groceries. I just give them this piece of plastic and things happen. If I, if I need a prescription, if I need medical care, I can walk into a doctor's office or into the CVS and show them this card. And they provide Medicine and care. And if there's anything else I want, just a couple of taps on the Target app or the Amazon app here, and it's at my door in two days or less sometimes. All of these things are good in and of themselves. Please don't hear me say they They are so good. They are great, incredible gifts. And actually the problem, again, is not, not that they're bad. It's actually that they're so good. The gifts of those things are so good that they actually are in danger of eclipsing us from seeing the goodness of the one who is the giver of them. It's not that those things are bad, but they're so good that they can eclipse the giver and begin to have us thinking that we can have a life without needing Jesus. It can deceive us into thinking that we aren't utterly dependent on him for everything. And I just wonder if, if how that would change is that every time we did take out our credit card or debit card, if every time we did take out our insurance card or order something on our phone that we pause just even just briefly to say, God, you are the one who's provided all these things for me. You, you're the one you you're the one who's given me these things. This is, if I've worked hard in a job to earn that money, you're the one who gave me the ability to work hard in that job. All of this is a gift from you. Thank you. Because remember, self-sufficiency is incompatible with a real relationship with Jesus. And this is why Jesus and the other early church leaders are, give such strong warnings about wealth. Again, not because wealth is bad or evil or sinful. It is not. They just don't want us to become Laodiceans. They don't want us to become people who develop an I-need-nothing attitude toward Jesus, an attitude that makes Jesus want to throw up. Because the longer we live with an I-need-nothing kind of attitude, the more complacent we become in our faith, the less central Jesus is, the more we become like a plant that is being choked by weeds. Because Jesus tells this amazing parable. It's actually recorded in three of the four Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's the parable of the sower or sometimes it's called the parable of the seeds or the parable of the soil and it's where Jesus tells a story about a soil a sower who goes out and he's throwing seed and some of it lands on the road and some of it lands in the rocky soil and some of it lands among the weeds and some of it lands on good soil and he tells this whole story and later his disciples come and they ask him Jesus what is this what is this parable what does this story mean and as Jesus begins to interpret look at what he says about the seed that falls among the thorns and the seed is a, is a me- image a metaphor for the word of God for the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Because in others, other seed, are sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word. But, verse 19, The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. That is what was happening to the Laodicean Christians. They were experiencing that kind of life that begins to be choked by the weeds. Again, the, the riches are not the problem. It's the deceitfulness of riches because the more riches that you have, and by the scale of the whole world, every one of us in this room has a lot, it begins to deceive you into thinking, I'm actually okay. I actually have everything I need. I need nothing. That's the deceitfulness of it. And the desires for other things are choking out their relationship with Jesus. Again, please don't hear me say that wealth is bad. It isn't. The issue is that it's so good that it begins to provide an illusion. It's deceitful and can begin to provide an illusion that I don't actually need Jesus. And that's a danger. And here's the thing also. A life lived with material comfort and ease as the highest good, is not actually the life we want to live. Someone helped me recently with the distinguishing between the fact that our strongest desires and our deepest desires aren't always the same. Our strongest desires and our deepest desires aren't always the same. Many of us, myself included, have a very strong desire to live a life of material comfort and ease. I have a very strong desire for that. But what is my, really my deepest desire? It's actually that, that I want a life of courageous faith that risks and is willing to, to do things that seem counterintuitive to the broader culture. But there's a, you get that the difference between our strongest desires and our deepest desires? They're not always the same. Author Donald Miller once put it this way. He says, if you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and worked for years to get it, You wouldn't cry at the end when he drove off the lot testing the windshield wipers. You wouldn't tell your friends, you saw a beautiful movie or go home and put on a record and think about the story you've seen, but then this is where he drops the heavy load. But we spend years actually living those stories and expect our lives to be meaningful. And what happens to our faith, what happens to our church community when we begin to sort of adopt an I-need-nothing sort of attitude when it comes to Jesus, a, a, a kind of a self-sufficient, like we've got this. As a church, we've got this. As a, as a family, we've got this. As an individual, we've got this. We get what Mark Sayers, who's an Australian cultural commentator and pastor, he calls it dead orthodoxy. And listen to how he defines it. And This is always sobering when I read it as I think about our church and, and others like ours. He said, dead orthodoxy is this, when true biblical faith is affirmed with our words and our thought, but the heart remains stagnant and unchanged. Doctrine is biblical, but the spiritual life of the church or the believer is dead. Uh, And and he also talks about uh, what he calls cold orthodoxy, which is a little different. He defines it like this. He says, cold orthodoxy is when correct biblical faith and doctrine are held. However, church caught in cold orthodoxy works from the memory of a past move of God. Little vitality exists in the daily spiritual life of the church. You know, both of those are sobering but especially that last one about cold orthodoxy. Because you may have if you've been around, you've heard that we're celebrating 30 years as a existence as a church. The Christ community has been around, started in 1989. This is our 30 year anniversary. And you know back 30 years ago when it was just 20 or 30 people sitting in The Corinth office building over here by Corinth uh, Square, they met for those early meetings in the basement of that office building was just that handful of people. Those pioneers of Christ's community, they had to depend on God for everything, right? There wasn't a budget. There was just a group of people coming together and starting this thing. But now, 30 years later, five campuses, a generous congregation, uh, an excellent team of paid staff members across those five campuses, literally hundreds of phenomenal volunteers It could be easy for us to slip into a cold orthodoxy because of the momentum that's been built to live on the faith of a past move of God because the thing's just kind of going and humming now. It's running. For us to be able to feel self-sufficient as a church, to not constantly be in a place of Jesus, if we're going to accomplish anything that's worth anything, we need to be utterly dependent on you. We need to be on our knees praying, God, help us provide, do, lead, empower what we're doing. And the Laodicean church, it began with that kind of zeal for Jesus, with with this kind of a white-hot passion for him and utter dependence on him for everything. But now, and this is probably about 40 to 45 years after the church was planted in Laodicea, which is like, okay, that timeline's not that far off from our history as a church at Christ Community. Now they are saying to Jesus, I need nothing. Oh, Christ Community. Would those words never be uttered by us as a church? Uh, but, but I fear that they are being uttered by us in the way that we live and the way that I live often. And and again, the life of our church is, is of one body, but that body is made up as individuals. And so together as a body, if we are living lives that are subtly saying to Jesus, you know, I'm good, I don't really need anything. If our individual lives are going to be marked by a cold or a dead orthodoxy, then our total church could begin to be marked by those same kinds of things. We believe the right things, but have little spiritual vitality, little passion for Jesus, little concern for people who don't yet know him, little joy and creativity to see our work as part of God's redemptive plan in the world, and vital what he's doing. That could happen to us. It is happening for some of us. So how do we escape this if, we, if we've begun to, to slip into a cold orthodoxy or a dead orthodoxy? How do we begin to renew a love and affection for Jesus that is contagious? And, and here's the solution, I think. I've, I've called it this, a grace-fueled. Zeal. And I want to show you where I'm getting both of those ideas from in this passage. First, the grace fuel part. Jesus says to them, like, look, you are naked, you're blind, you're poor, and he has a solution for them. One of the evidences that you are beginning to experience God's grace in your life is that you actually begin to see yourself as Jesus sees you, which is you actually begin to recognize how... Poor and blind and wretched you actually are. That is evidence of grace at work in your life. But here's the beauty of that. Because Jesus doesn't leave you there. He's the one who says, I'm going to provide grace to meet every one of those needs. So he says, come to me and buy gold refined by fire. Come to me and put on garments of pure white. Come to me for a salve that will heal your eyes. Right, and it's fascinating actually that Jesus tells the church that he's just said, You are actually poor, come and buy gold from me. Come and buy clothes from me. With what? But Jesus is echoing a passage in Isaiah 55 where he says, Come and buy all of these things without money. Come and buy milk. Come and buy gold without money, without price, without cost, because Jesus has already paid the cost. He's provided all these things for them. He's calling them to come and receive from his grace. What they truly need is nothing that they could buy with their wealth, nothing that they could be uh, covered with their material goods, nothing that they could be healed with their medicine. They need this to be provided by Jesus. Verse 18, I counsel you, and I love what Jesus, how he frames this. He doesn't command them he counsels them. He invites them. Jesus is both so firm and yet also so tender in this text. I counsel you to buy gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What they needed was a fresh encounter with the grace of Jesus who provides them with these things without cost. But to receive them, they must abandon the lie that I need nothing. They need everything. And Jesus is the only one who can supply it. They need everything. Brothers and sisters, when you begin to encounter God's grace in that way, when you begin to see yourself as pitiable and poor and wretched and blind, but you realize that Jesus loves you and that he gave his life for you and that he is passionate about seeing you experience life in him, that reality brings a warmth to a cold orthodoxy. It begins to revive and bring to life a dead orthodoxy. And when that happens, new life begins to flow into stuffy churches that have all the right beliefs, but that it isn't alive in their affections. Jesus calls us to stop depending on ourselves, to start receiving from grace from him afresh. And that, that's, that's the grace-fueled part of this. The second part of this is zeal, which maybe even has kind of a negative connotation to us. You think of somebody who's a zealot, it's not necessarily a positive picture in our mind, but it's the language that Jesus uses here in the text. and so I want to I just lean into it. He says, actually, be zealous in verse 19. And the idea of that word is there's an eagerness, a passion, a fervor, a deeply committed to something with with the implication that you have a a strong desire for it. And, And friends, as a church, the reason that you are here this morning, the reason that we exist as a church is to proclaim the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead and that we have new life in him that lasts now forever through all eternity. That ought to do something for our affections and for our emotions. We ought to feel something about that. Jesus calls us to be zealous, to be passionate about him once again. To those whom I love, he says, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So what does it look like to cultivate that kind of zeal, that kind of passion and affection for Jesus? How do we obey that command to be zealous? Well, there's lots of things you could say here, but I think first and foremost, to be committed to grace-fueled training to saturate ourselves in the Bible, to read it, to memorize it, to to talk with others about it, to share what we're learning, to journal about it, whatever it is, to get this book, these words of life into our life. And one of the things that the Bible actually does as it begins to shape us deeply, is it actually begins to shape our proper emotions as well. Uh, Christopher Ash, who's a wonderful biblical scholar from the United Kingdom, um, he has, I think, an amazing insight in a book he wrote on the Psalms. And, and he points out this. He points out that when the charismatic movement slept, uh, kind of swept across British and, and North American Christianity in the 1960s, and if you're not familiar, charismatic movement was kind of this movement where people were really uh, emphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly maybe in speaking of tongues or other kind of like dramatic signs. There's a lot of emotion around it. He says one of the sad consequences was the loss of proper emotion within some churches. Listen to what he says. I think this is so insightful. He says, in reaction to, against the errors within the charismatic movement in which emotion became disordered emotionalism, those who define themselves as conservative or classic evangelicals sometimes retreated into a spiritual life with very little emotion. And, and let me just tell you dear Pastor, I was deeply shaped by that dynamic. Of of being very um, wary of any kind of emotion, too much emotion in a worship service or in a a gathering, or even in the the, kind of the quietness of my own heart. It was almost like, well, The one thing you shouldn't ever show emotion about is Jesus and the gospel at church. But friends, Jesus made your emotions. He created you with those, and first and foremost, you respond to him with them. <laughs> and Ash points out out, this, this is where the Psalms actually come to the rescue. He says, the Psalms show us how to develop strong and godly affections, and indeed fierce and healthy aversions as well. They train us to avoid both the unpredictable reefs of charismatic error and the deserts of dusty orthodoxy. That's so good. And, and friends, as a church, well, let me just say, like, we are, we're not in danger of the reefs of charismatic expression here. <laughs> but we are, I feel it, we are in danger, friends, sometimes of the dusty deserts of orthodoxy. And then Ash continues, for the Psalms perfectly combine thought and feeling, theology and prayer, emotion and reality, the subjective and the objective. So begin to saturate yourself in the Psalms. Begin to orient your life around prayer. One practical tool to begin doing both is there's a little app you can download for your phone called the Daily Prayer App. I've been using it for a number of weeks now, and it's really helped me kind of either kind of three, four times throughout the day. You don't have to do all of them, but you can set a reminder and it will remind you four times a day to begin to shape your life around rhythms of prayer and engaging with the Scriptures. And if you, I think if you do all the Scripture readings in that, not that you have to, but if you were to do all of them, I think you actually read through the Psalms once a month. It begins to shape your emotions. Now, I, I know it may feel like me or Nathan or Taylor are always getting up here and saying, what you need to do to follow Jesus is to read your Bible and pray. And it may feel like, can they say anything else about the Christian life than that? And, and there's probably more that needs to be said. There is more that we say, right? But let me ask you this question. Are you reading your Bible? Are you saturating yourself in it? Are you making prayer a central part of your life? Have those practices, the practices of Jesus, you see those two central practices of Jesus, of engaging with the Scriptures in prayer, shaped Jesus' life. Have those practices begun to shape you more than your phone, more than Netflix, more than shopping on your phone? And until they do, for me and for you, I'm going to keep calling us to those ways and those practices of Jesus that have shaped his life and must shape ours too. But don't miss this. don't think that the Bible and prayer are just tasks to do to get Jesus' approval, or that there's some kind of like mechanistic, like if I do these things in sort of a formulaic way, then it will automatically equal a relationship with Jesus. Because they are not about religiosity or self-improvement. They're not that at all. They are about developing a real conversational, intimate, joy-giving, life-sustaining, temptation-overcoming, wound-healing, strength-giving, perseverance-producing, Grace and grief comforting, work transforming, courage inducing relationship with Jesus. With the one who created you and who is giving you new life. You are a new creation and you're being conformed to his image. And Jesus wants to come in and eat with you. That's the language we get at the end of this text. We're almost done that this picture of an intimate and relationship with Jesus is around a table eating with him sharing a meal together. But most of the time, I don't. I suspect many of us don't. We don't really want him there in the center. We We don't really want him. Why? Because we're fine on our own. Verse 20, behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, And opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Uh, How many of you have one of those ring video doorbells on your house? You know, we have one. If your heart, if you're the center of your will, your affections, where you make decisions that when the Bible talks about the heart, that's what it means. If your heart had a ring video doorbell on the outside of it, and you pushed the live view to see what's out there right now. You would see Jesus out there longing to come into the center of your life to shape all of it. Because here's here's the deal. Jesus there's only two places he can be. He can either be outside the door wanting to come in or he can be at the table with you. He cannot be any other place. There's only two options. Jesus is saying, I will come in with you. I will fulfill you. I will come and give you meaning and rest to your life. So open the door to that intimacy and bring him into the center because he's either in or he's out. Where is he today in your life? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for these hard but tender words from Jesus in this final letter, in this letter to the Laodiceans. It's done a lot of work in my heart and in my life, and I pray uh, that for others in this room, by the power of your Spirit, that you would show us those places where we're just saying, "I, Lord, I don't really need you. Show me where I'm saying that and what I depend on you more and more each day would we do that as a church? And would it bring to life places of cold orthodoxy or dead orthodoxy would be replaced with warmth and life and refreshing and healing? We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.